Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. This is the reading of God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are currently in a series called In the Beginning, where we're looking at the first four chapters of Genesis. And why we're doing this series at this particular point in time is because I think the question the entire world is asking right now is, when is life going to get back to normal? Well, what is normal? What does normal even look like? Are we talking about life before the pandemic? A life that was over busy and full of stress and anxiety and worry? Because if that's what normal looks like, why would we want to go back to that? And I think what the book of Genesis does for us is that it tells us exactly what normal looks like. It tells us how things were supposed to be before we messed them up. You know, the first time I ever used a cast iron, everyone told me it was going to be a game changer, it was going to change my life forever. But for some reason, no matter how many times I tried, I could never get my stakes to come out the way everyone else's did. And it took me like 19 attempts before someone finally said to me, hey, I don't think you're supposed to soak your cast iron in water and scrub it with soap. In other words, I wasn't getting the results I wanted because I wasn't using the cast iron the way it was supposed to be used. I didn't know what normal looked like. 
And in that same way, we will never be able to comprehend the disorder we experience in our lives unless we understand what true order actually looks like. And so we're looking at Genesis chapter 2 today where we get what appears to be a second creation account. Notice the way verse 4 opens. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So right away, we see that what we're reading here is another creation narrative that's distinct from what we read in Genesis chapter 1. Now, this narrative isn't meant to compete with or contradict anything we read in chapter 1, but more so to complement it by providing a different perspective and emphasis specifically with regard to the creation of humankind. So one way we can think about it is, if Genesis 1 is kind of like this big arrow pointing us to an all-powerful God who spoke the entire cosmos into existence, then Genesis 2 intends to kind of give us greater insight into who we are and how we are to relate to this Creator and His creation. One way scholars put it is, Genesis 1 lifts us up toward God, while Genesis 2 brings God down to us. And that's what we see in verse 7 when it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. I mean, the first thing that should immediately jump out is how intimate this picture is. It's not a picture of a distant God who's removed from his creation. It's a picture of a potter who takes his clay and carefully molds, forms, and shapes it into a living, breathing human being. In other words, our God is as personal as He is powerful. And we also know this because the name used for God in Genesis chapter 2 is actually different from the name used for God in Genesis chapter 1. In chapter 1, the name used for God is always Elohim, which is kind of this generic name for God that comes from the word meaning to fear. So right away we see that Genesis 1 intends to give us this sense of reverence and awe when it comes to God, but then in chapter 2, verse 4, it suddenly switches from just Elohim to Yahweh Elohim. And in the 21 times this phrase Yahweh Elohim is used in the first five books of the Bible, 20 of those instances come right here in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And this is significant because Yahweh is the personal covenantal name for God. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And God is showing us that not only is He a God who is all-powerful and worthy to be praised, but He's a God who from the very beginning is near to His people and desires a personal, intimate relationship with His creation. Now, in the same way that a potter always has a specific purpose for anything he creates, God also has a specific purpose for humankind. And we're going to see three things God gives to humankind in our text. And so if you're taking notes, here are the three things. God gives us responsibility, God gives us rules, and God gives us relationships. And those things are all going to give, a clue, give us a clue as to what the purpose of humankind is. Okay, so number one, God gives us responsibility. Notice what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then if you jump down to verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. You see, God gave the responsibility of tending the garden and naming every living creature to humankind. In other words, God created us to work. 
Now, this may be surprising for some of us because typically we connect work to the fall. I mean, we can't imagine how work could possibly be a part of God's original design. I mean, how could it be? Nobody likes to work. Work is everything that's wrong with our lives. Work is our source of frustration and anxiety and stress. And yet here in the beginning, in Genesis 2, before sin ever entered the world, we read that there was work. Adam wasn't just frolicking in the garden, drinking a mimosa. Adam was working. He had real responsibilities. And this means that contrary to popular belief, work itself was not a curse, but rather a gift given to mankind to glorify God and to keep his creation. Now, why is this important for us? Well, number one, it shows us that all work has eternal value. And as meaningless and menial as some, our work can sometimes feel to us, all work matters to God. Whether you are a janitor, a teacher, a pastor, a business owner, or a stay-at-home parent, your work matters to God. There is no such thing as spiritual work and non-spiritual work, sacred work and non-sacred work. And this means that even if your entire life is changing diapers and feeding kids, your responsibilities are just as significant as those of a CEO running a Fortune 500 company. You know what I find so interesting? that the first profession mentioned in the Bible, the job given to the first human being, is gardening, blue collar, manual labor. And it's though God wants to show us that in his economy, all work is sacred. He wants to show us that all work, if done in his name, glorifies him. Pastor and author uh, Tim Keller offers the following definition of work. He says, Work is simply rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. Put another way, it's using all the gifts and materials at our disposal to love God and love neighbor. If you are a musician, you're taking the skills at your disposal and using it with the raw materials of sound to produce music that makes us feel something. If you're a teacher, you're taking the skills at your disposal and combining it with the raw materials of knowledge and expertise and research to shape and form young minds. Whatever responsibilities we have, God says, steward the resources I've given you to keep my creation. Okay, so number one, God gives us responsibility. And number two, God gives us rules. Take a look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now keep in mind that this is before the fall, which makes you wonder, why do you need rules in a world without sin? Because typically when we think about rules, we think about them as these restricting, constraining things. I mean, even in the Bible, rules are associated with the law. And the law is often seen as this negative, oppressive thing. I mean, especially for those of us who live in the 21st century, where we value our personal autonomy and our individual freedom, we generally don't like rules. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like the idea of submitting to authority. And yet right here, God tells us in Genesis 2 that rules are normal. They're a part of his original design. You know, that word rule can actually be traced back to another word, railing. Now, what's a railing? Well, think about a railroad track or a handrail. 
They're things we hold on to or use to stay on the path. And God is telling us that everyone needs rules to stay on the path he set for them. And this is important for us to hear because it allows us to relate to God not as this scary taskmaster, but as a loving father who wants what's best for his children. You know, my two-year-old son, Jack, who we call Jack-Jack, is definitely living up to his name. He's wild. I mean, the more dangerous something is, the more he wants to do it. Multiple times, he's tried to run into the middle of the street while we weren't looking. And in his small two-year-old mind, he truly believes that our goal in life as his parents is to keep him from having fun. And he doesn't realize that all the rules we give him are for his protection and for his benefit. They're not to restrict him, they're to keep him alive. You know, I think for a lot of us, when we read the Bible, it just feels like an exhaustive list of rules. Don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. But Genesis 2 tells us that all of these rules are God's loving railings for us to keep us on the path, to keep us alive, to allow us to live a full and flourishing life here on earth. Okay, so number one, God gives us responsibility. Number two, God gives us rules. And finally, God gives us relationships. Take a look with me at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And this section from 18 to 25 is typically a marriage passage, but I think it can also be applied to community in general. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about how whenever something kind of diverges from the general pattern of the narrative, we kind of have to pay extra attention to it. And that's what we see here. In verse 18, for the first time in the entire creation narrative, God looks at something he creates and says, that isn't good. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, God always follows the same exact pattern. He creates he kind of sits back, evaluates his creation, and calls it good. But here in verse eight, 18, God creates Adam, sits back, evaluates it, and he says, it isn't good that man should be alone. And this is before sin ever entered the world, which tells us that God gives us community not because we're weak or dysfunctional or sinful. God gives us community because we're created in his image in the image of a God who chooses to be understood in the context of a loving community between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which is why in Genesis 1 it says, let us make mankind in our image. Not let me, let us. And so for us to adequately reflect the beauty of our Creator, we need community. We cannot become loving people unless we have people to love. We cannot become gracious, forgiving people unless we have people to forgive. We can't become generous people unless we have people to give to. There's something beautiful and meaningful about relationships that make us feel whole and human. And Genesis 2 tells us it's because this is the way we were created. We were created to need each other. Now, in case you think the Bible is completely irrelevant to our current context, I present to you COVID-19 as proof of the validity of Genesis chapter 2. Let me explain. Number one, COVID-19 has showed us the value of all work. If you think about it, COVID-19 has completely reversed all of our pre-existing notions on essential and non-essential workers in society. 
I truly believe that one day we'll look back on this season and we'll remember that it wasn't the celebrities or the sports stars or the CEOs that kept us alive. It was the grocery store workers, the truck drivers, the healthcare workers, the stay-at-home parents. The very professions we so often overlook were the only professions that mattered to us during this pandemic. And it's as though God is subtly reminding us that in His economy, all work is sacred. Number two, COVID-19 has also showed us the value of rules. You and I are currently both worshiping in this online format. Why? because all of us are under a statewide mandate to stay at home. And yes, this safer at home order has caused many of us to have to adjust our lifestyles accordingly. Yes, it has forced many of us to give up certain comforts and luxuries, but you know what? We all did it and we did it willingly and collectively. Why? Because we knew that ultimately these rules were given to us for the protection and benefit of ourselves, of our neighbors and the most vulnerable among us. And finally, I don't even need to say it, but I will, COVID-19 has showed us the absolute necessity of relationships. I mean, even the hardcore introverts at our church are telling me, Jason, I am ready to start seeing people, please. You know, just last week, I read an article in the Harvard Business Review that talked about Zoom fatigue and how these Zoom chats are taxing our brains because we weren't meant to interact with people this way. We're also seeing sharp spikes in loneliness, depression, and anxiety. Suicide hotlines are reporting an 8,000% increase in calls over the past few months. Why? Because what Genesis 2 says is true. We were created for meaningful connection. Now, not only does the world we live in prove the validity of Genesis 2, it also shows us how far we veered from normal. I mean, our work now is no longer a means to glorify God and love neighbor. Our work is often a means to glorify self at the expense of neighbor. God's rules are no longer the standards by which we navigate our lives. As long as something feels good to us, that's all that matters. Our relationships no longer reflect the beauty of our creator. They're simply tools that we use to satisfy our own needs and desires. And we know what this is doing to us. It's destroying us because this isn't the way we were created to be. Our food is not tasting right because we're not using the cast iron the way it was supposed to be used. But this is why the gospel is so beautiful, because this is what God does. He comes into this world, takes on flesh and bone, and one of the first things he does is that he redeems all work. Of all the professions he could have chosen, you know what he comes as? He comes as a carpenter, blue collar, manual labor. And then you know who he chooses to be his disciples? Fishermen, blue collar, manual labor. As if to remind us that in God's economy, all work is sacred. Number two, Jesus then goes on to live the perfect life, to follow every rule to the T and show us what it means to be fully human. That it's not about getting everything we want. It's not about having all of our individual needs and desires met. It's ultimately about submitting our lives to the will of the Father. And his obedience ultimately took him to the cross where he paved a way for every broken relationship to be restored. You know, this past weekend, I haven't been able to shake the image of 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery who was murdered in cold blood while he was jogging. And I'm sure like many of you, 
I literally had a physical reaction when I watched this video for the first time. I could not stop trembling. And I think it's because that in that small video, in that short video, it was a picture of everything Genesis 2 was not. It was humanity disregarding its responsibility. It was humanity choosing to play by its own rules. It was humanity destroying relationships rather than building them. And we grieve. And our hearts broke when we saw that. Because we knew that this isn't the way it was supposed to be. You know, this past Friday would have been Ahmad Arbery's 26th birthday. And I'm pretty sure right now, at this very moment, he would have been celebrating Mother's Day with his mom. But he's not. And we grieve what we've become as a people. But friends, I want to remind us today that as broken as the world is, we don't grieve without hope. Because the Bible tells us that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God promises to fix everything that is broken, and He promises to renew, redeem, and restore all that has been lost. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come humbly before you, acknowledging that we've lost our way. We confess that we are not living the way you designed us to live. But we thank you that in Christ, you reclaim your people for yourself and redeem all that is broken. Today, we rejoice that we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, all because of who you are and what you've done. We thank you for the word today. In your name we pray. Amen.